So Money, Episode 849, Casey Clark, co-founder of Vital Voice Training. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. What is the right way to speak? How and why can your voice be a mask to help you accomplish the goals you hope to achieve? Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today, we are chatting with Casey Erin Clark. She's the co-founder of a business called Vital Voice Training, which is a voice and speech coaching company on a mission to empower women and change ideas around what women are supposed to sound like. What are we supposed to sound like? Yeah. We talk about this as well as vocal fry. What is it? Do you have that? And does it even matter? Casey's business, by the way, was born from a career heartbreak. She grew up with the goal to be on Broadway, and she had numerous career successes from being in a number of off-Broadway musicals. She performed at the Oscars. She was a member of the Les Mis National Tour, but when she tried to get the part to perform Les Mis on Broadway after the tour, she didn't get the part. And we'll learn how she went from this huge heartbreak to a breakthrough, working as a singing coach and running Vital Voice Training with her co-founder. Here is Casey Erin Clark. Casey Erin Clark, welcome to So Money. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm a little nervous to have you on the show, admittedly, because of what you do as a professional. You are someone who voice trains. And <laughs> That's true. I mean, even though I've done about 900 episodes of this podcast, I feel as, and I've, I feel, I know I've improved over the last four years, but it's, it's another thing to have someone on your show who is probably just, you're, you're just always, you know, you're not judging us, but it's part of what you do, right? You listen for voice quality. I do. I, I'm listening for a lot. And and I think what, what you're bringing up is actually a great point. And especially because you are a woman podcast host, you are a woman of color podcast host. One of the reasons why I started my company five years ago with my co-founder, Julie, is specifically to address this. And that is that women's voices, people of color, and women of color in particular do deal with a lot of extra criticism in the world. Um, when we when we got started back in 2014, we were in this boom of articles about things like vocal fry and things like upspeak and all of the ways that women needed to fix their voices in order to be taken seriously and show up in the world. And, and we wanted to offer a different perspective. I love that you identify that so much of the criticism, you're right, has been targeted to women. I remember reading those articles about vocal fry and starting to get really insecure about my own voice. I have gotten notes from listeners, men. I'm sure you have. Men who are like, you have the worst vocal fry, Farnoosh. And I take offense to that because I know for a fact that I don't have the worst vocal fry. I, <laughs> You don't. I, I've listened to you and you really don't. 
Uh, thank you. I mean, I definitely, you know, it's a podcast too, Casey. So we get really comfortable on the show. We don't talk like we're on a stage. Mm-hmm. And, and for that, sometimes I feel like I get penalized, but I think you're absolutely right that women are often at the butt of a lot of this criticism. And your company is called Vital, Vital Voice Training. It's a voice and speech coaching company that really does cater to women. And, you know, you have this belief that we're supposed to like, sound a certain way, that, not, not your belief, but you're trying to combat this belief that women are supposed to sound a certain way. What are we supposed to sound like, men? Well, so again, one of the reasons that we founded the company was as a reaction to what we saw as traditional voice and speech coaching. So whether it was, you know, in the 1940s, we would call it elocution lessons. And the object of elocution lessons for both men and women, to be fair, is was to get rid of any regional accent, to get rid of any colloquialisms that might give you away, and essentially to teach you how to put on your serious voice so people would take you seriously. And it was essentially based on a model of there is one way to speak correctly, and that way happens coincidentally to look a whole lot like a middle-aged white man. Well, yeah, um, I'm, I'm thinking uh, broadcasters, right? Is this yeah. the Walter Cronkite method? Like, that? Yes, it's, it is very similar to that. And, and there are, you know, even to this day, there are plenty of public speaking coaches out there who will count it or teach you to put a rubber band around your wrist and snap it every time. Or or they will talk about things, again, as if there is one correct way to speak. And this is what we're rebelling against, because especially as we move towards a world where we're more conscious of diversity and more important than diversity inclusion, that's going to start to look like different sounding voices. Leadership sounds different on different people. And that's not only okay, that's a great thing. But what it requires us to do is confront our unconscious biases of how we listen to people. So, so vocal fry, for an example, it's a perfect example. Everyone vocal fries, very much including men. Um, for those of you who may not know what vocal fry means, vocal fry is the sound of like this. So there's not a lot, a lot of breath coming through my voice. Um, you might hear an extreme version of vocal fry that people call, um, as, as popularized in the, the movie called in a world that like Belle wrote, um, sexy baby voice. It's like the Kardashian. <laughs> um, oh gosh. So. I don't want to get used to that. Don't make me get used to that. Don't make me, I don't want to okay that. I think that needs to actually go away. So, so there's a helpful way to talk about it and an unhelpful way to talk about it. Basically, so, so what we're talking about when we talk about sexy baby voice or Kardashian voice or whatever, whatever you want to call it, is it's a, it is a specific cultural adaptation. It is, um, not unlike what Todd was talking about in your last episode, a bit of a costume. It's a, it's a character. And the thing is, we, we don't speak to our friends or our children, or our puppy dog, the way that we speak to our boss. We are incredibly socially adaptive from a vocal and communication perspective. It's how we build our habits. And sometimes the habits that we build in one area don't serve us in another area. And so what we're teaching our clients to do is to claim their full voice, not just the habitual voice that they've built over the years, to explore all of the different pitch range that they have and tonal range that they have and and the different ways to access that, whether it's through 
an objective, whether it's through what am I trying to accomplish with the person that I'm talking about, talking to, whether it's a technical exploration of it from singing or using Shakespeare. There's so many ways to play with our voices, but keep it in the range of what is what is my voice capable of? And then I get to make an empowered choice about how I want to show up in the world. And that's what we want our clients and and frankly, everyone to do. Um, So with vocal fry, a lot of it comes from two places. It comes from a lack of breath. So we speak on an exhale. And as my my partner and co-founder, Julie, likes to say, we live in a bit of a post-breath culture. People just like don't breathe when they talk anymore because, you know, it's cool. Because life is suffocating us. Uh, that is, yes, definitely, definitely a part of it. And, and so we don't, we don't think about uh, the fact that our words ride on our breath into the world. And so vocal fry tends to show up at the end of sentences because we just sort of drop off. We just sort of like, we talk and we talk and we talk and, and often we don't put periods at the ends of sentences and then we kind of just run on air. And that's when it happens. Um, or the other thing that I see all the time, and and hopefully you in particular, again, as a woman who hears her recorded voice all the time, will be interested in this. A lot of women, particularly older women, and particularly women who work in a lot in a male-dominated environment, so um, the finance industry, for example, have artificially lowered the tone of their voices in order to fit into the cultural norm of the system they're in. So you see this particularly in women who are in their 50s and 60s. Um, it, it was a way to kind of defeminize yourself in order to be thought of as authoritative because what we're used to when we hear an authoritative voice is a deep male voice. And so what happens is that they go underneath where they can actually on a, on a purely physical level where they can fully phonate and it becomes, so I'm, I'm putting on this low voice. And then when I end my sentences on a down, I, I go past where I can actually comfortably make sound in a full way. So, so a lot of the vocal fry that I see comes from that, from women not wanting to sound girly and then mm. being accused of sounding too girly because they have too much vocal fry. It is a classic double bind. We can't win. We just can't win. Um, <laughs> but I like, I like the connection you made with, uh, with Todd's episode, Todd Herman, who was on recently talking about the alter ego effect and how I think your voice is part of that mask, right? That you put on and you go out there and you try to do all the things and kind of get out of your comfort zone for the purposes of executing and, and achieving success. Um, you arrived at this profession. Casey, as an actress yourself, uh, and such an amazing resume, 18 months on tour with Les Miserables, you were on the Oscars, I believe, you performed at the Oscars, my goodness, (laughs) and off-Broadway musicals. Um, First of all, I think it's so incredible that you got to Broadway, forget the Oscars, I mean, that's like the, that's like one in a million billion but so many little girls and boys grow up dreaming about being on Broadway you did it 
Yeah, I uh, well, to be totally technical, I have never been on Broadway, oh, but well, I've been on no tour. No one's really on Broadway. On They're on like Forty Eighth Street. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So, so I um I I majored in singing and dancing and acting. I have a musical theater degree uh, from a wonderful Midwestern small liberal arts program called uh, Illinois Wesleyan University. And moved to the city uh, when I graduated college. And I mean, the whole small town girl moves to the big city to make it on Broadway cliche. And and I was really, really fortunate. I, I've gotten to be a part of some really amazing shows, met some incredible fellow actors and artists. Um, it, it, it was a great it was a beautiful experience. Um, Les Mis in particular, I think people have such love for that show. So touring the country with it and, and experiencing how people just, I mean, they just love this show. It's such a gift to night after night affect people the way that Les Mis affects people. Um, the, the thing about the theater business, um, is that it's a terrible way to make a living, like a genuinely terrible way to make a living. Because even when you get to the tip top of the profession, there is almost no job security. And, you know, the top salary, if you're not a super, you know, star person who's on Broadway, if you're not the lead in the show, um, the the equity, equity is the actors union, the, the minimum salary, I think at this point, um, equity people feel free to correct me if I'm wrong is something like between 18 and $1,900 a week. So this is like the top of the profession living in New York city, which of course is a very expensive city to live in. And you're not cracking six figures. Um, not even close because you've got to pay your agent, you've got to pay oh the union fee. So, so it's plus we're dealing with the, the very real supply demand imbalance in the industry. And there are, Oh, there are so many talented people in this city. I mean, I hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, honestly, it's, there are 200 girls who are like me, who are five, seven and the same weight and have red hair and have similar vocal types. It's a, it's an immense talent pool for a very small number of available jobs. So what that imbalance does, of course, is it causes a great deal of stress, a great deal of feelings of competition and feelings of, I think, a, a lack of abundance, that that lack mentality. And then it's kind of, I have a soapbox about this. It's kind of glorified in like the starving artist mentality. Oh, don't even where, get me started. Oh my God. We have... <sighs> We could talk about that for hours, girl. I've done whole op- podcast episodes about this. It's, I'm going to have to seek that out. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's it's not right. I don't think that it's it has to be that way, right? Um yeah. I've talked to a lot of artists who reflect on their journey and they say I wish I had known there was another way to actually practice my craft and also make a living. They're not mutually exclusive people. This is this is what I'm encouraging. I, I I do still work in addition to working with my business clients. Um, and gentlemen, I'm happy to work with you too. I do have male clients. Um, in addition to working with my my voice and public speaking communication clients, I do still work with singers and with uh, actors of all levels. Um, but a, a lot of professionals and a lot of young professionals. So I I do this camp every summer where I talk with high school and college kids who are about to enter this business. And and that is one of my biggest soapboxes with them is not only is it important to 
um, to recognize that making money does not make you a sellout. Um, there are things that make you quote unquote a sellout if we want to get into that. But, but the act of being able to take care of yourself as a functioning adult human being is, does not make you a bad artist. You can create the kind of art that you want. You can make your own opportunities and you can nurture your other skill sets and create what I have started calling the, the way that it's manifested on me is what I've started calling my career multiverse. Like I have all these things that I do. I have these skills that I bring to the table and I am immensely fortunate that I am building something where people will pay me for those skills. And it fulfills me on a very deep way because, you know, when I'm speaking at a women's conference or, or, or doing a workshop, I am on stage and I love being on stage and I am not ashamed to say that I love the spotlight. I love being on stage. I'm an actor, please. Um, but I could do that in contexts other than, oh God, I have to book this Broadway show or my self-esteem is dead. Well, you did have a point in your career when your self-esteem died, I would say. It did. Right? Can I say that? It's when <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your heart definitely broke. Uh, it was when you, yeah. After, yeah, after touring with Les Mis for 18 months, you were not booked the part on Broadway which I, I think that's yes. quite the letdown because you're like, well, I kind of know this role, people. I've been doing it for 18 months. <laughs> I've, I've gotten this far. So, yeah. yeah. And um, oh, did you think you had it and then it didn't happen? Or were you pretty like, what was that moment like when you were told you didn't get the part? Were you, were you surprised? Were you, uh, were you, I mean, obviously upset, but what, what did you think it was like? Whose fault was it? <laughs> That's what oh, I would have only commiserated over for like at least 24 hours. Yeah. This is not my fault. <laughs> well, so again, the, the reality of the business is, is that there are tons of talented people. And so the, the journey kind of towards the Broadway production of Les Mis, you know, I had done the tour. I'd been off the tour for a while. I had been invited to go do the Oscars performance with the movie cast, which was, as you said, a one in a million opportunity. They, they chose... 10 women and 10 men from all the worldwide productions of Les Mis to come in and sing at this one event. And it was one of the biggest honors of my life for sure. And, and that probably in addition to the fact that I had experienced on tour, I didn't feel like I had it in the bag, but I think, you know, intellectually, I always knew it was still a long shot because that's just the facts. But I think in my heart, I was like, Oh my God, this is it. This is, this is the dream. This is the thing that I've been working towards ever since I was a little girl. And, and this feels like the time it's going to happen. No matter how many times I try to reason with myself, like, okay, but don't get invested in it. Of course you get invested in it. It's the reality of how we as human beings feel things. So when it didn't happen, it, it did kind of break me for a while. And it really made me question everything. It made me question, you know, did I, did I piss someone off? <laughs> did I, did I, bomb that audition. I don't think I did. It felt really great. And at the end of the day, what I, Oh God, <laughs> at the end of the day is one of those phrases that because of Les Mis will never, ever be the same. Cause it's the title of, you know, that one of the opening songs of the show at the end of the day, um, you have to go, all right, this wasn't, this wasn't the moment. This wasn't the thing that I was supposed to, to do. And now looking back on it, um, over five years later, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. 
was not booking that show, which is a scary, crazy thing to say, but not getting my Broadway dream caused me to start to broaden my goals of what would make me happy. And those goals included then, as my bio says, I, I read the book, Half the Sky. So Half the Sky, if you've never read it, first of all, you should put it on your reading list. It will, it will make you very angry in the way that I think women are not usually allowed to be angry, but it, so it's, it's about the, the five major issues facing women worldwide, particularly in developing countries. And thank God it's not. And this is how the benevolent white people swoop in and fix the problem. It's, it's about the women who are experiencing these issues finding their voices and finding their supportive communities and creating solutions to the problems that they know intimately. And, and I got really fired up about these things and these issues and and how big they seemed, but also so inspired by the women who were tackling them. And I thought, okay, I majored in singing and dancing and acting like, what can I do to help support this, this moment? And, and the answer was, I know how to help people feel confident and, and I know how to take someone who has beautiful ideas, but feels very, un, very uncomfortable relating them to people and help them relate to people in a way that will get those ideas on the table so that we can create real solutions to these very real problems. And I am so Oh my God, Farnoosh, I loved, I love my job. I love this thing that I've created. And I, and I don't know that I would have built this or at least built this at this point in my life if I had booked Les Mis and done the Broadway thing. So, so it's a perfect example of how, you know, all these little moments throughout our lives hopefully work together to make us the person that we're supposed to be. If we respond to them by saying, okay, time to iterate, time to do the brave thing. Thank God for Brene Brown and helping me confront my perfectionism and step into vulnerability and do something which was insane to be, you know, a musical theater actress who's never started a business and be like, I think I'll start a business today. It was crazy. Well, that's what I'd love to explore too, is the let's start a business part because you, as you mentioned, you were not a, you know, an entrepreneur necessarily in this, in this way of like running a business and having clients. I would love to know that transition and how you supported yourself <laughs> and how you got that plane to get, you know, to ultimately take off as you were trying to manage your finances and build savings and all of that. Well, so First of all, my my financial journey, I have to acknowledge the immense level of privilege that I have. So I grew up, you know, as an upper middle class white girl in a small town near St. Louis, Missouri. My father grew up quite poor with many, many, many brothers and sisters. And I think that as he started to gain success, um, he really wanted to give his children all the opportunities that he never had. I think that this is a, this is a story that we hear a lot. Um, so I never had to think about money as a child, as a teenager, and even really, you know, going into college. I mean, I was in 
I was incredibly, I didn't ever get everything that I necessarily wanted, but I certainly got everything that I ever needed and a lot of the things that I wanted. And, and so I never really thought about money in the way that people for whom money is, is an ever present worry in their lives have to think about it. So, um, thanks to scholarships and the immense generosity of my parents, I graduated debt-free, which is an insane advantage and start in life. And I also, um, met my husband fairly young and we got married fairly young, at least for now, how people do that usually. And my husband who was an actor, uh, stepped into the business world and started making actual money. Um, and so I've always had a support structure in my life that allowed me to take risks. Um, that said, I've had to start as an entrepreneur thinking a lot more deeply about money, thinking about how to get it, how to keep it, how to spend it, how to invest it. Um, and, and that's been a major part of my journey in terms of the actual, um, technical aspects of running a business. Uh, I often call it going to Google university, um, <laughs> in that I had a question. It's like, okay, I want to do this thing. When I build our website, I'm going to Google that problem and I'm going to find a way to do it. So I've adopted a, a personal philosophy of everything is figure outable. Yes. So I was able to, to Google, to start to discern what is the good information and what's the bad information and to ask for help when I needed it. Uh, I was very, very fortunate to have, to start building this community, particularly of women and women entrepreneurs and women business owners around me who were so generous in the sharing of their knowledge and their experience with this stuff. So, so, you know, if you're out there and you're an artist and you're thinking about starting a, a side hustle and you're like, I don't know anything about business. What am I going to do? Uh, Google is your friend and friends are your <laughs> friends in that you can, you can ask for help. You don't have to do it by yourself. Um, and you can make mistakes because Lord knows I certainly did. I appreciate what you said about um, affording yourself the ability to take on risks and really leveraging the um, the financial stability that your parents raised you with. A lot of times people don't do that, you know, and I think that owning that story is really brave because some people don't admit that they had, um, you know, that they entered their adult life without debt. And that's what actually helped them to get a head start or at least to experiment and take on some healthy risks. Um, it's, it's much sexier to say, well, I lived in my car and I had all these student loans and then luck struck, you know, like then I got my big break or then I, you know, uh, got my part in Les Mis. But um, I think it's important to own your story, which you just did, and to say it out loud for the other people who might feel like it's not appropriate to share that story, right? Because I I didn't have a, a tough, you know, debt ridden upbringing. Um, but, but, but believe me, there are people who have a lot of resources who don't do half the things that you did. Well, and, and there are people who have a lot of resources who, you know, have this myth of, well, I'm a self-made man or whatever that, that don't acknowledge that privilege. And, mm -hmm. and we, we can't, I, I don't think we can have productive conversations about the universe of what money does without talking about privilege, without talking about what certain people, you know, the, the old cliche, certain people start on third base and, and I, I don't think I necessarily started on third base, but I sure as hell did not start 
you know, at the place that so many people do. And, and that's why I do, I do admire those stories of, um, of, I, I, you know, I was reading about Arlen. Oh gosh, I'm going to forget her, her last name, the amazing, um, black woman who is, uh, now a venture capitalist, um, who, who did talk about taking these immense risks and, and is talking about how we need to fund black women entrepreneurs because they don't have the advantage of, again, fitting into that dominant cultural story of what an entrepreneur looks like. And as long as we have this very narrow idea of what an entrepreneur looks like, we hold ourselves back from getting to the best ideas and the best solutions. So I just don't think it's possible to talk about money without talking about privilege. And and it's something that I'm learning uh, to acknowledge. So thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Time for a question from our sponsor, Chase, which is what is your money resolution, Casey? And have you, have you kept to <laughs> so, it? It's February. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's sort of two. Um, my my main one, and this sounds so simplistic, but my main one really is uh, to pay more attention to money. I think I think I tend to be, and again, I think this goes back to my upbringing of never really having to think about it. I tend to be a little bit avoidant of things like looking at the numbers in my bank account and looking at where my money is going and looking at my, my teeny tiny little 401k that I invested in when I was on tour with Les Mis and seeing how that's doing. So just being more aware of how money is fitting in my life and what's coming in, what's going out, what I need to save for taxes. Cause you know, hashtag freelance life. Um, that's a big thing to think about. So, so being more mindful of all of it. And the second one, I think, um, and again, just touching back on this idea of ridding ourselves of the starving artist mentality, my partner, Julie and I, as we looked at our goals for the business this year was we want to make a lot of money ethically that that ethically make a lot of money is, is a very important piece of it. But what does that mean for our business? It means charging what we're worth. It means seeing, um, you know, the different ways that we can access business, uh, doing corporate workshops where we're, we're talking to more people than we can, you know, when you're treating an hour of my time with one person, you know, there's a kind of a ceiling to what I can charge. Um, when we're trading an hour of our time and expertise to, more people than that, it's a different ceiling. So, so looking at the balance of how our business brings in funds and figuring out how we can make the kind of money that allows us to continue to grow and continue to get what we now are able to stand in very confidently and say is important work that does a lot of good to get that out into the world. I'm so happy to hear that you want to make more money. I think that I, w- I was just having this thought the other day that um, for too long, I think that there, women have had this story in their head, not all women, but I think more, more women than men have a story in their head or like a voice in their head that says like <sighs> making too much money that there, first of all, that there is this thing as having too much money, which I don't agree with. Oh yeah. 
And that by being someone who has a lot of money or someone who wants to, who wants, who wants to pursue the act of making more money or a lot of money, that that is a bad thing, that that is not a virtuous thing. And I think that is a bad message. It's what's kept a lot of women inadvertently and, um, right, dually in poverty, right? Like we, you can't tell yourself these things. You cannot believe these things and actually expect your life to, improve, to actually expect you to have the ability to make an impact on your life and on others' lives. You need money. Money is a, is a, is a real resource. Well, and it's a tool. And I think that, that like any other tool, how you use it is what creates the results. And I think that, that the women entrepreneurs that I am friends with and that I'm building these communities with feel very strongly that money is a, it can be in the right hands and with the right application, an immense tool for good. And, and so the, the very first business conference that Julie and I spoke with, and it's actually, <laughs> this is sort of our origin story. The day that we bought our domain name and, uh, you know, sitting around my, my table in my one bedroom New York city apartment and drinking rosé going, what are we going to call our company? <laughs> the day that we bought our domain name, we sent out our first pitch email to the founder of this feminist business conference called the bullish conference. And Jen Jazeera is, is fantastic. And she is very much in that mindset of women it, that it is possible and, and even a good thing for women to make money. And she, she said something at that conference that really struck me um, because we were doing this exercise of, um, you know, what do you, where do you want to be not in five years or 10 years, which is sort of a standard timeline for those questions, but where do you want to be in 30 years? And I realized when I, when I, was asked that question that in 30 years, I would be the age that my mother was right then. And I thought about my mother's life and I thought about what she's able to do and what she does do. And I thought about what I want to do when I'm my mother's age. And so everybody's sharing, it's a lot of really cool things. Um, but it all boiled down to Jen saying, you don't necessarily know what your future self will want, but you know what your future self will need and your future self needs options and resources. And that like struck like a gong inside my heart. I was like, yes, options and resources. We, we need to be able to make empowered choices. And, and like, let's be clear, money makes making choices easier. And, and we need, uh, you know, resources. We need, we need a way to manifest what we want. I keep using that word. I actually don't love the word manifest, but we need a way to, to, do what we want in the world. And, and again, money, money is a tool. Money is a tool. That's so true. Think about what your future self needs. And that's pretty, I think that'll come much easier than maybe what you want. Uh, Cause that could be very subjective to your future life and your future self. But um, this is such a, have you ever had these kinds of conversations on a podcast before? I feel like you have such a gift to share in these stories. Well, thank you. Um, I, I love podcasts. I, my Julie and I are actually planning on, on starting one this year. If we could ever get around to it in the immense to do list of the, of the entrepreneur. But, uh, I, I do love to talk about, I love to talk about my work. I love to talk about women's voices in the world and men's voices in the world. I, I love to talk about the way we communicate it in terms of the way we think about money. Um, I've been fortunate actually to have a couple of clients who are finance people. Um, 
and who are doing this, this work and asking people to think about their money stories. And I think working with them has, has caused me to think more deeply about this, which is something I think we all have to do. It, it, anytime that you can apply a little deep thinking to something that's a little scary and a little icky and a little uncomfortable, like money tends to be, uh, I think that you can illuminate really important things about what you want and what you need. And, and knowing what we want and need is such an important tool to living a fulfilled life in this crazy stressful world that Mm. we live in. Um, so yeah, thank you. I really, really. Thank you. And hopefully by the end of this, we're all happy to do it. Oh, I just lost that last couple seconds from you. Just say, just say whatever you just said, like five seconds ago again. I think it was like you were saying thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I I really, I really appreciate the compliment and, and frankly, shameless promotion. I am so happy to talk on literally anyone's podcast. Invite <laughs> me. We'll talk about voices. We'll talk about anything you want. I can talk. Well, I'll tell you what, after listening to you, after talking to you, I definitely feel as though I have more breath in my voice. You know, wonderful. I, yeah, you've, you've, you've given me some, an injection of oxygen. Um, and that's <laughs> all to say that I, I really was inspired by everything that you said. I feel really like I want to take more action now and, and, and just being more, um, intentional with, with everything in my life. Thank you so much and happy new year to you. Happy new year to you. Uh, and thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm, I'm so thrilled to speak to all of your listeners. Thanks to Casey Aaron Clark for joining us. You can learn more about her company at vitalvoicetraining.com. Casey is also on Twitter at Casey Aaron Clark. If you missed any of this, just hop over to somoneypodcast.com. We have the whole library of episodes there. You can search by topic, name, episode number. And if you want to download the transcripts, we've got that for you. If you have a question for me, click on Ask Farnoosh on the So Money Podcast website, and I will tackle it in a forthcoming Friday episode of Ask Farnoosh. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. So money.